Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I was there to see the end of another lockdown. One night in early September 1995, the streets of Sarajevo filled up as people came outside to listen to the sounds that meant that, at last, their liberation was here. Loud explosions in the mountains all around this beautiful, devastated city were caused by NATO bombs, falling on the army whose siege of the city had kept these people frightened, without heat, often without water, for four years. I was a journalist then, sent to cover the beginning of the end of the horrible Bosnian War. On the main pedestrianised street, Farhadia, light shone from shops and bars that had been dark for so long. Young people strolled up and down, laughing, calling to each other, some groups in a line linking arms, cheering each bomb as it landed. For those previous four years, the people of Sarajevo had lived under lockdown because the Bosnian Serb army had surrounded the city, putting it under siege, cutting it off from the outside world. The enemy sat in the mountains, firing missiles into the city. Snipers picked off civilians who made themselves visible for too long. 15,000 people were killed. But that September night, they walked up and down their own main street again, without fear, listening to the final defeat of those who had terrorised them for so long and killed their family members and friends. Their faces were lit up with the thrill and the joy of it all. And despite four years living in the dark, in basements and in apartments whose glass windows were long destroyed by the war, most of the women were dressed as if they had just emerged from homes in fashionable Paris or Milan instead of war-torn Sarajevo. They didn't look like survivors of a long military onslaught. They could have been on Grafton Street on a normal Christmas Eve. There were women in smart clothes and makeup and good coats and good shoes. I stopped some of them and asked questions, and some gathered around to talk to the foreigner with the notebook. I asked them how, after living such lives of hardship for such a long time, they were able to come onto the streets looking so well. They told me they had carefully minded these possessions through the dark days, and that these were not trivial things. They were the items that made them feel human. They marked a refusal to accept the position that their attackers had chosen for them. One young woman, Alma, told me, the only thing we have is our pride, our makeup, and our dresses. Throughout the siege, the people organised many events to show their refusal to have their humanity taken away from them. They held film screenings and musicals in basements. They sometimes took their lives in their hands in order to attend. Some simple gestures of defiance had huge power. In February 1994, a mortar round landed in a downtown Sarajevo marketplace, killing 22 people. The cellist, Vedran Smilovic, responded by performing a very mournful piece, Albinoni's Adagio in G minor, at the site for 22 consecutive days, one for each death. Every day, people gathered to watch him defying horror with beauty. He played his cello at funerals and in ruined buildings, refusing to let his city's dignity be taken away. Fourteen months into the siege, the misbesieged Sarajevo contest was held in a basement. On stage, the contestants stood in a line in their cocktail dresses, holding a banner for the world's media which read, Don't let them kill us. The moment inspired U2's song, Miss Sarajevo, which they sang with Luciano Pavarotti. During adversity, the desire to assert that there is more to us than the ability simply to endure misery is very strong. 
and as we endure the COVID-19 pandemic, but there is some danger. And there is some of the same repression of normal human activity as we keep away from each other and stay indoors. Our worlds have shrunk, possibilities seem to have been reduced, but there will be a time for all those things we don't have now. I revisited Sarajevo 12 months later to write about the first post-war elections. The shops were open, rebuilding was underway, young people sat at pavement cafes. A group of international athletes came to the city at the same time for an athletics meeting as a gesture of solidarity, and I went along. Mangled tower blocks overlooked the stadium that had hosted the Winter Olympics just a decade earlier. Behind them were the hills from which Bosnian Serb gunners had pounded the city, including this stadium, close to ruin. Beside the stadium was a large graveyard, the old gravestones vastly outnumbered by hundreds of simple white crosses marking the graves of some of those who had died during the siege. And after a couple of political speeches, a group of more than 104 and five-year-old girls and boys emerged at the sideline and ran to the centre of the stadium. These children had been born during the siege. They had been minded and protected and nurtured as war raged around outside their doors. Now they danced unselfconsciously and safely as we all clapped and cheered. There was time for a fuller life again. It was the smartest thing in our sitting room. It didn't look like a record player, more like some sort of magic casket. Ours was lacquered black, so you could see your face in it. It had two gold lines along the bottom and ivory-coloured knobs. Other people had even fancier ones, with willow-patterned designs giving a chinoiserie effect. It was called the Black Box, made by Pi in Cambridge in the 50s, and it was part of my mother's plan to civilise us. She wanted us to know about classical music, but there was little of it before our bedtime on Radio Erin back then. So she bought the black box and she paid for it with flower bags. We had a bakery, and flour used to come in big, tightly woven cotton bags. She sewed them together to make sheets for our beds and what she didn't need, she sold off. At first, she played her scratchy old 78s on it. Benjamino Gili singing tenor favourites like La Donne Mobile and Nessun Dorma. We'd yodeled them around the house, doing our own version of the Italian. But we much preferred the new long-playing vinyl records with their photographs and their clever artwork on the sleeves. There was an album of Chopin pieces played by the great Dutch pianist Cor de Groot. He would bring out the melody so powerfully that as children we'd sing Chopin like a pop tune. We must have seemed like ripe prigs. But maybe we understood instinctively that Chopin is all about the tunes, the songs. And it may have been in his effort to stress the melody and mute some of the show-off arpeggios that de Groot's right hand broke down, tensed, you might say, between piano and forte. 
He didn't give up. Every musician in Holland wrote him music for the left hand, and in time, de Groot and his magic right hand recovered. Chopin was all very well, but the three things you really needed to know about music, declared my mother, were Mozart, Mozart and Mozart. She was good at choosing the bits that a child would like. The German dances, the Eine Kleine Nachtmusik and best of all the horn concertos recorded by Dennis Brain. There was a picture of him on the cover, an ordinary looking guy who could have been a clerk or a plumber. But when he played the French horn, it sounded as liquid as a clarinet. Listen to that breath control, my mother would whisper. The same with the record of Kathleen Ferrier singing What is Life from Gluck's Orfeo. Hear how she controls her voice, we were told. Control when you sang, control when you spoke. Control was a big word in the 50s. Corsets, censorship, elocution, church power, iron curtains, fear of nuclear war. Oh yes, you had to keep control. Make no mistake, we adored my mother. Everybody did. She was a generous and a brave woman. Her attempts to teach us about classical music may have been an exercise in cultural control, but we knew it was done out of real love for us and for the music, and I'm still grateful for it. But in time, we started to explore. When I was 13, I went to the Gaeltacht in Balneskelligs and I heard a song called Auron na Leor, and I fell in love with it. There wasn't much time for Irish music at home, a stance which was probably political. So I was astonished to discover the romance of the landscape and the music of Iveraha. I spent the rest of the summer mooning over the minor chords of Auron na Leor on the piano at home. My mother put her head around the door and asked me shyly what I was playing. I was able to tell her about the song, where it came from, that it was written by Daniel O'Connell's loyal bard, Tomás Rua O'Sullivan. For the first time, I realised that I knew more than she did about something and thought differently about it too. I was growing up, as were we all. Inevitably, what brought in Mozart eventually brought in Elvis. That fellow, said my dad, changes his car more often than he changes his shirt. And with Elvis came Bill Haley and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Lonnie Donegan and Buddy Holly. My brothers had taken over the black box. It grew extra bits, huge black speakers which took over every surface, cables everywhere. The sitting room filled up with guitars and with hulking teenage males smoking and sniggering. My mother had accepted defeat gracefully by the time the Beatles came along. At least those boys, she said sadly, can play more than three chords. She was the first woman I fell in love with. Love at first sight, unquestionably. 
I would have been about five or six years old and living in a house of women, the only boy. Anne was a friend of my grandmother's and when she died, my mother inherited the friendship, though there was a significant gap in years between them. In 50s Belfast, Anne cut a dash. She would arrive into the house for evening soirees or to collect my grandmother or simply to have a chat. There was a breathless ease to her arrival. Her soft-spoken voice, always intimating something special was about to happen, or had just happened. And for the youngster I was then, the sheer presence of Anne, her red hair tied tautly to her magnificent head, the lipstick ringed around the plain cigarette she smoked, and the energy she seemed to spark from every move. I was consumed without ever knowing it. When we went on holidays, in July usually, for the month, Anne would arrive for a few days to amuse my grandmother and give her a break from the likely bother of my sister and I trundling about the rented house. Occasionally, we would all traipse off to Ballyhome Beach and take in the sun and sea air. Anne would be there in amazing floral skirts and neat classy blouses with the coolest of dark glasses. She would talk to me and laugh a lot. Her eyes, always with a hint of tragedy about them, could tear up and moisten without any notice. There was definitely an actor-like quality to her every gesture and move. Where and how she and my grandmother had met is lost to the mists of time. Quite possibly, it was via their lives working in downtown Belfast, possibly in the famous Royal Avenue store, Gurwitch's. Or maybe they came across one another on the busy social scene of concerts and dinner dances in the post-war city. I don't know. But what I recall very clearly is Anne's stellar quality and how it shone through the murky gloom of wintry afternoons when she would visit us after my grandmother had died in 1960 at the relatively young age of 61. Anne was devastated. I could hear the sobs as she spoke about Ethel and what she had meant to her over the decades of their friendship. Our relationship deepened a little over my ensuing teenage years and she would tell me about the things she had witnessed as a young girl growing up during the city's earlier bout of troubles when the McMahons of Cliftonville Road, a Catholic family like her own, had been brutally murdered in 1922. It was an eye-opener into what had been seething barely 40 years previously under the surface of the North Belfast we were living in and enjoying. She would encourage me in my faltering, incoherent desire to write poems and even imagined a life for me as a writer, something that seemed way beyond belief or even possibility all those years ago. And then my mother decided to move and the contact began to loosen. One occasion remains solidly etched in my mind. It must have been 1968 or so, maybe a little earlier. We visited Anne in her apartment overlooking the Annadale Embankment of South Belfast. It was late summer, I think, heading towards the late afternoon too. We stayed for a couple of hours. They talked mostly of my grandmother and shared memories as well as expressing views on spiritualism which had at one time been so popular 
across my grandmother's war-torn generation. I stood in the small balcony of Anne's flat, looking across at the Lagan River as it moved slowly by and heard the two women converse, almost prayer-like, and then we left after tea. It was the last time I saw Anne, although she did write to me a few letters of encouragement, which I kept for many years. In his fine poem, based upon Colin Middleton's dreamlike painting, Lagan, Annadale, 1941, Frank Ormsby captures the random wistfulness of personal time as set against the bigger picture of history. 1941 was, after all, the year of the Belfast Blitz, an experience which Anne and Ethel and my own mother had in common. When many of their fellow citizens were killed, and the city badly mauled by the Nazi bombers. Frank Ormsby's short poem floats free of that history and turns instead to the music of time. So when I recall that afternoon all those years ago and think of Anne and her abiding mystery, the poem's opening lines hold a very special resonance in my mind's eye. There is something about this side of the river that is the right side to be on. You know the trees are set to survive the war. Those walkers face steadily into their lives. That child, you trust, will grow to take peace for granted. Let's call a spade a spade here. Writing songs is a pure notion to be found in the notions aisle of your local supermarket. Oh, I can't go out to fill the cold just now. I'm writing a song here. Yes, I'll cut the grass in a minute. I'm just working on a middle eight that takes me to a different space. But in all seriousness, getting a chance to put order on a thought that you thunk and then to put a tune on it and then years later and miles away maybe hear someone you never met singing it. What a thrill that must be. A few years ago in our local primary school I suggested to one of the teachers that as the P7s, so 10, 11 year olds, were leaving to go to big school it might be nice to mark the occasion by giving them an opportunity to write a song together. Which then, on the last night of P7 at the family mass and barbecue they could get up and perform as a surprise for their parents. We wrote five songs over the next few years and some of my finest work came out of that rich seam of material. Every year you'd go into the class, you'd explain the idea, get the whiteboard out and say, how do you all fancy writing a song? Any thoughts on leaving primary school? Are you excited? What are you going to miss the most? And to be fair, everybody chipped in. One wee girl said, well, I'm a little bit happy and a little bit sad. And that became... I'm a little bit happy and a little bit sad. Another ten-year-old, kind of reluctant to share the lyric he had, 
And I'm sure this child has gone on to a lucrative career in something that involves holding on to what you have until you get paid in full, in cash. He said to me, hold on, are we getting pizzas for this? And then there was a final class full of characters who, when I asked how they felt about moving on, said, we are legends in this school. And that was gold. So that started me on a songwriting journey during which I channeled my inner Gary Barlow and came up with, I'm not going to lie, a stone-cold classic. Now, no recordings exist of any of these songs, so you'll just have to take my word for it. But because it had been a success in years gone by, and because that year were a musical bunch, I thought we'd pair their song with May We Never Have to Say Goodbye by Sean Davey, which I love. If you don't know it, it was written specially for the great coming together of people from all over the world to Ireland for the Special Olympics in 2003. We crossed the oceans, we crossed the valleys, we crossed the mountains high, but now we're here, there's none to fear, and may we never have to say goodbye. In fact, they used to play it through the speakers at the end of big matches in Crook Park just to make you feel more noble and Corinthian. And it worked. Even when your team had just lost by a point scored by a man who should have been sent off in the first half. So anyway, the night of the P7 party came and we'd practised and I told the kids not to let on about the songs, we'd keep it a surprise. So just as the parents were preparing to move outside for the barbecue, marking their little darlings moving on to big school, I started the piano intro and we launched into the Sean Davy, Oceans and mountains and none to fear... And I could see in the hall it had touched some parents who were probably surprised to see their kid up on stage singing and the words being so appropriate and all. And then we explained that that wasn't all. The boys and girls had also written a song specially for tonight. And then we started on the Legends in the School song. Now in hindsight, I should have known that singing that song on that evening would be emotional. I probably secretly hoped our songwriting efforts might, you know, provoke a few tears, but nothing prepared me for what actually happened. As they belted out the first chorus of Being the best that we can be Always making you proud of me I spotted one of the boys standing in the middle of the stage, shoulders starting to go, tears streaming down his face as he sang, and his classmates went to him, God love him, they gathered round him, and then that started them off. And then as all the things we talked about, the breathing and the phrasing and the pitch and pronunciation, all that went out the window and pupils and teachers and parents were in floods. Secretly, I was loving this, congratulating myself quietly on the power of music to move people at such an important milestone in their family life. I mean, there hadn't been a public display of emotion like this since Diana's funeral. And then the P7 teacher came over. She was a brilliant teacher who inspired love and respect, whether in the classroom or on the football pitch, and always told it like it was. As I was accepting Ivor Novello songwriting awards in my head, as the kids consoled each other in a damp huddle on the stage to the muffled sobbing of their parents, she leaned across the piano and said, Well, we'll never be doing that again.
it began with Peepo. Here's a little baby, one, two, three, stands in his cot. What does he see? My son, as a toddler, was obsessed with that book. It's a child's eye view of a day in the life of the Second World War, where, against a backdrop of gas mask box slung over a bed knob, barrage balloon floating over the rooftops, bombed out building in the distance, quotidian life goes on. His sisters squabble, search for a jam jar to take to the pond. His mother washes windows and does ironing. His father, home on leave perhaps, and poignantly dressed in a uniform by the end, gives him a bath in a tin tub by the fire. The signs of the Blitz are all around us where we live in East London. The infill houses where the Victorian and warehouse buildings were pulverised. But I started to think about the Belfast Blitz, about which I knew next to nothing apart from the fact that there had been one. It was not something we learned about in school, nor that featured in many Belfast-set books I'd read, with the exception of Joan Lingard's The File on Fräulein Berg, about schoolgirls convinced their German teacher, in reality a Jewish refugee, is a Nazi spy, and Brian Moore's searing, semi-autobiographical The Emperor of Ice Cream, which draws on the author's experiences of being an ARP warden. But the Belfast Blitz, which consisted of four aerial raids over the course of April to May 1941, caused some of the worst devastation, the most casualties of any bombardments anywhere in the whole of World War II. After the final May raids, known colloquially as the Fire Raids, a Luftwaffe radio operator said, We stared silently into a sea of flames, such as none of us had ever seen before. One would not believe it. My grandma, Claire Caldwell, who would have been 21 then, died before I could ask her about the Blitz. My dad remembers his uncle's stories of running up Cave Hill to look for shrapnel from a crashed aeroplane, and other family friends, when I asked them, remembered incendiary bombs falling into the yard, or the woman seizing their shawls and baskets when word went round the Turner's greengrocer had oranges in, or playing shop themselves in air raid shelters. And I realised this. Although the Belfast Blitz is an undertold chapter in the fiction of my city, in this year of its 80th anniversary, it still exists within living memory, just about. I didn't yet know that I was writing a novel, or laying the groundwork for one. But over the autumn of 2019 and the early part of 2020, my interest in the Belfast Blitz really began to solidify. I was reading Jonathan Barden's books, working my way through Brian Barton's magisterial The Belfast Blitz, The City in the War Years, ferociously annotating Stephen Dowd's book of eyewitness and oral history, trawling forums and online archives, poring over old maps of the pre- and post-war city, After war was declared in September 1939, London was on high alert for imminent aerial raids, which did not come for a full year. This gave Belfast a false sense of security. Though so much wartime industry was centred there, most believed the city was beyond the range of the Luftwaffe's navigation systems or would come under neutral era's cloak of protection. Even as the war came closer, they did not think in Belfast it would ever happen to them, or at least not badly. In my present day, this was the time, of course, that the strange new Wuhan flu reached Europe, 
And even as we saw horrific footage from lockdown Italy, despairing pleas on social media, we hoped that it couldn't, wouldn't be like that here. But as it reached our shores, this thing so feared and dreaded, this thing we were so underprepared for, a window seemed to open for me between worlds. Our April to May and theirs. Idle, pompous talk about the spirit of the Blitz was everywhere. But I did start to feel a correlation between our batten down time and theirs. What struck me most poignantly about the diaries I read, the memories of the people I spoke to, was the oddness of the delights the Blitz had unexpectedly brought. The acts of resilience. The fortitude. To write a historical novel means to make the past anew to bring it to life, to relive it. It became the work of my days, my weeks, to plot a course through the horrors, not stinting on the cruelty, the meaninglessness of them, but showing how people survived, how, in even the most desperate of circumstances, life goes on. No one who lived through that time, or this, remains unchanged. But you don't get another chance to turn, say, 15 or 21 or 6. You don't get another chance to have your first baby or your first kiss. You make the most of what you have. And, of course, even when writing the past, you're writing the present too. I often wonder what my son, now 6, will remember of all this. I asked him this morning about that first lockdown. London smelled like Belfast, he said, and he was right, it did. With far fewer cars on the streets, the air on our inner city balcony was soft and fresh. We all clapped on our balconies, he said. And then he grinned. You bought me Lego in the post. James Kelly, then Northern political editor of the Irish Independent, reports survivors saying after the devastating raid of April 1941, my God, that's Belfast finished. But it wasn't. Iris Rocks of Broom Street in West Belfast remembers everyone saying, we'll never get over this. But they, we, did, and do, and will. On this morning's programme, we heard... Mark Brennick with The End of the Lockdown. Then The Black Box by Olivia O'Leary. That was followed by In Love with Anne by Gerald Dole. Then Legends by John Toll. And finally, Windows Between Worlds on the Belfast Blitz by Lucy Caldwell. The music this morning was Miss Sarajevo by U2 and Brian Eno featuring Luciano Pavarotti. Then we heard Auron Nalauer by Tomás Rua Osulawan, sung by Eilish Kennedy. Then Chopin's Etude, Opus 25, Number 1 in A-flat major, played by Vladimir Horowitz. And then finally, May We Never Have to Say Goodbye, the athlete song of the 2003 Olympics, composed by Sean Davy and Noel Eccles, Performed by the RTE National Symphony Orchestra under David Brophy, featuring Rita Connolly, Ronan Tynan, the Special Olympics Choir and many other artists.
Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes over at rte.ie forward slash culture. RTE Radio 1 You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.